Views expressed in the following episode are those of the subjects interviewed or individual presenters from the case. They do not necessarily reflect the views of Reach Freaks LLC, the Invisible Choir podcast, or cast media. Reach Freaks. Invisible Choir explores detailed depictions of violence and murder and is not appropriate for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. I'm not going to stand up here and tell you how much I hate you. That is without question. I just hope that someone will have mercy on your soul because I have none for you. Parenthood. Without a doubt, it's one of the greatest joys life has to offer. Until we have children of our own, it's hard to comprehend the true significance of what bringing a smaller version of yourself into this world really means. If you're like my wife and I, you may even have a couple identical mini versions of yourself running around right now. When we strive to be the best parents we can possibly be, we must make it a main priority to keep our children out of harm's way. Once they arrive, a newfound purpose, responsibility, and perspective is suddenly bestowed upon us. If you don't have children of your own, you can surely appreciate in some capacity the sacrifices your parents or guardians made to ensure your safety and protection. This is something we usually don't grasp in its entirety until we reflect back as adults ourselves. But not everyone is lucky enough to have a safe and sound family structure. One ill-fated common thread we all share is that good home life or not, none of us are exempt from potential danger or tragedy. No matter how hard we try, some things are simply out of our control. Life is as precious as it is unpredictable, as cliche as it may sound, and we must cherish each moment we have with our loved ones, as we can never know or predict when it might be our last. One mother from Waynesville, Ohio, knows this harsh reality all too well. She gave her son every opportunity in life to excel, and by all means, he was well on his way to doing so. Until one day she came home from work, and he had seemingly just vanished. This was very unlike her son, and although a mother's intuition is often right, not even her worst suspicions could have conjured up where her firstborn, Justin Back, had actually gone. Waynesville. It's a peaceful village in Wayne Township of Warren County, Ohio. With a population of roughly 2,800 residents, it feels like everyone's your neighbor in a place like this. One family in particular that just about everyone knew in town was Sandy and Mark Cates, along with their two boys, Jacob and Justin. Justin was like the most even-kill kid. Even as a toddler, he didn't throw tantrums or anything like that. That's Sandy. Her youngest, Justin, was born February 13, 1995. Sandy and the boys' biological father had separated when they were both very young, and she remarried soon after to Mark Cates. Mark loved Justin and Jacob like they were his own. The four had a family unit as strong as any. Justin was well-liked by his peers and always smiling, and it seemed everyone that crossed paths with him seemed to describe him exactly the same way. Funny, kind and compassionate. He always thought of other people. He so cared for his friends and everything. If they needed something, he was right there. He dropped everything. Justin was always the type to lend a helping hand or just an ear if someone needed to talk. This was the case even if he didn't know you that well. If Justin saw somebody sitting at a table by themselves, he had to come over there. You're not gonna eat by yourself. A great example of this was in middle school, when Justin met a boy who wasn't as popular as he was. That boy's name was Austin Myers. Austin didn't have any friends, so Justin became like a mentor to him. This was simply Justin's nature. His mother raised him to treat others with respect. Even so, Sandy was a bit leery of Austin. He was somewhat of a troublemaker in middle school. Of course, she was only looking out for her son's best interest, but it was hard for Justin to see anyone struggle. 
He wanted to help people. And so Austin and Justin became relatively close through 7th and 8th grade. Myers lived right around the corner and, like most kids, Justin found himself hanging out with those in and around his neighborhood. But after one sleepover in 8th grade, Justin's mother Sandy would tell her son that she didn't want him going over to Austin's house anymore. He spent the night with him one time in eighth grade. You always ask your kid, did you have a good time, da-da-da? And he was like, uh, it was weird. I was like, what are you talking? It's weird. And he's like, well, mom, he shot at the neighbor's cat with a BB gun. And he also, I think Justin called it like, um, oh, what did he call it? It's where like you set fire to um, aerosol cans. She's most likely referring here to an Axe body spray flamethrower. He's like, Mom, that was just weird. I was like, you didn't do any of that. He's like, no, Mom, that was weird. And I was like, well, you're not to hang out with him anymore. And he said, Mom, I feel bad for him. Justin showed a genuine concern for Austin. He knew things weren't easy for him back home, so Sandy agreed on a compromise. Justin could still hang out with him, but only if it was at their house when Sandy was present. Unfortunately, it would only take one visit to the Kate's residence before this offer was quickly revoked and became null and void. The one time that I allowed him to come over, Justin's brother, Jake, he's like, Mom, he's going through my stuff. Sandy confronted young Austin Myers about potentially looking for things to steal in her son Jacob's room. She said he simply looked back at her with an empty glare, like the lights were on, but no one was home. And it was just like, you need to go. It set off all the bells and whistles in in mom's head. Then I said, Justin, do not let him in this house. He's not welcome here anymore. And at eighth grade, Justin, mom, I can't tell him he can't come in. I said, it's easy. He can't come in. So that was that. Mom had spoken and the boys slowly lost touch. As high school began, Austin ended up moving to Clayton with his mother, a town about an hour drive north of Waynesville. This surely eased Sandy's mind, as she hadn't seen or heard from Austin Myers at all after that. Life went on as usual for Justin in an upward swing. He held down a job at Casano's, a local pizza joint, amongst his already hectic schedule. He was also playing for the high school football team alongside his older brother, Jacob. Jake at that time looked like Kevin Bacon. And so they called Jake Bacon. Well, so here's little brother. So the football players was trying to figure out a nickname, you know, Bacon Jr. Cheeseburger. (laughs) It was Bacon Bits, but everybody called him Bits. Justin said, Mom, it has to be Bits with a Z because that's cool. You can just about sense how close they all were and what a great family they truly had. After high school, Justin continued working hard and ended up graduating from the fire science program at the Warren County Career Center in Lebanon, Ohio. The program was a two-year intensive academy, preparing students for entry-level emergency services positions out in the field. Becoming a firefighter was one of Justin's many dreams, but joining the U.S. Navy was at the top of his list. Jacob was in the Marines, and it was quite clear from a very young age that Justin was destined to follow in his big brother's footsteps, as he too wanted so badly to serve his country. Sandy remembers sharing a moment with him as they both watched Jacob's platoon practice for their graduation ceremony. With one son having just completed his basic training, she was worried as the next prepared to leave. She joked and asked him if he was sure he wanted to go. But of course, she always supported Justin, no matter the circumstance. Justin, please say you change your mind. He had this huge grin and he's like, turned to me and he's like, Mom, I'm ready for my uniform. I'm like, you know what? He's going to do this one way or another. So he's going to have Mama's support. For an 18-year-old kid, Justin had things pretty well figured out. He had a good head on his shoulders and was looking forward to his future. He was excited to begin his new life as an adult and couldn't wait to leave for the Navy. But even with the great amount of planning and hard work that he'd already put in, Justin could have never anticipated what was to come, less than two weeks before he was scheduled to ship out to boot camp.
January 27, 2014. It was like any other cold winter's day in Ohio. Justin Back was hanging out at home while his mother Sandy and stepdad Mark were at work. Suddenly, a knock came at the door. It was Austin Myers. Justin was surprised. He hadn't seen his old neighborhood friend in years. Yet, there he was, showing up unannounced and out of nowhere. There was also another man with him, but Justin didn't know him. His name was Timothy Mosley. Tim was one of Austin's new friends from school up in Clayton. The 19-year-old introduced himself, and Justin welcomed them both inside. The three hung out in the living room for a while, catching up and engaging in small talk. It was brief, and after only 15 minutes, Austin and Tim said they had to take off to run a couple of errands, but that they would be back. They said a quick goodbye, hopped in Mosley's silver Chevy Cavalier, and backed out of the driveway. Justin didn't think much of the short visit until a short time later when they returned, like they said they would. Justin once again welcomed them inside for a second time, and this time they all decided to watch a movie together. Not long after, Mark Cates, Justin's stepfather, arrived home. He walked into the living room but didn't recognize either of the young men sitting there on his couch. Timothy Mosley politely introduced himself as Tim, using only his first name. Mark had met Austin before, but didn't remember him. It had been years since he last saw Myers. Regardless, Mark was a friendly guy, so he sat down to watch the movie with the boys. When it was all over, he reminded Justin that he had a meeting with the Navy recruiter and that it was time to leave. Justin was set to take off in only 10 days, so the group departed for the evening. Mark and Justin to the Navy recruitment office and Tim and Austin off in their Chevy Cavalier. Tim's car was without its back windshield. It had a plastic garbage bag in place of the glass, crudely held up by red duct tape, and positioned squarely on the rear bumper was a large tap-out brand MMA fighting sticker. You couldn't miss it. But why does that matter, you might be asking. Lots of kids have shitty cars in high school. I myself drove a 1991 rusted-out Pontiac Grand Am. Be that as it may, this one was different and you'll understand the relevance of the vehicle's description here momentarily, but all in all, a pretty harmless interaction at the Cates residence that evening. Strange, I suppose, as Justin hadn't heard from Austin since middle school, yet there they were, kicking back like old friends. The unannounced visit seemed innocent enough, until the following afternoon. How do you solve a crime in reverse when you believe that someone was murdered but have no clue who the victim was? We have to do our job and we have to find out who did they kill, if it's possible. How are we going to do that? I'm Jake Halpern and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. The next day, on Tuesday, January 28, 2014, at about 3.30 p.m., Mark Cates returns home from his job as a corrections officer at the Warren Correctional Institution. He called out to Justin as he was supposed to be picking him up, but there was no answer. The silence struck Mark as odd. Justin was usually very punctual and had plans to meet his mother to do his taxes. Mark had gone home because he couldn't get in touch with Justin. So when he came back, I was like, well, where's Justin? He's like, I don't know. Mark didn't think much of it at the time. Justin was a younger guy about to leave for the Navy. He was probably just out enjoying his free time before leaving for basic training. So Mark left and went to his brother's house for a bit. We thought that he went to a friend's house or whatever. He didn't know when he'd be able to see them again once he went to the Navy. Not long after, Sandy arrives home from work herself. Something just didn't feel right to me. It was just a bad feeling. When I got home, I guess in my mind's eye, I was catching things weren't right. So I called Mark and I was like, I still can't find Justin and some of the rugs are missing from the kitchen. Mark hadn't noticed when he was there, but when Sandy got home, she saw that things had been moved, noting that certain items were missing. The house wasn't exactly a mess. 
In fact, it wasn't even obvious that anything had been altered, but Sandy knew it wasn't how she had left it. I was like, did you move him? He's like, no. And I was like, well, maybe Justin spilled something and he just put it in the bathtub or the washing machine and it wasn't there. And I was like, honey, the table is out. Did you move the table? Because the table was pushed completely against the door. Stools from the breakfast nook was out of place and just everything was, was jacked up. As their concerns worsen, Mark returns home once again to help his wife. The more they began to investigate, the faster they started to realize that something was indeed very wrong. Eventually, Justin's phone was found inside the house. Mark then noticed that it wasn't just some rugs that had disappeared. Then I noticed that Justin's lamp was on the floor. His drawers were all out a little bit. I'm like, honey, Mark's like, the safe. So he went and we had the safe in the closet. It was gone. But it wasn't just the safe that was missing. Mark's loaded handgun from the bedroom was gone as well, along with Sandy's jewelry. It was clear they had been robbed, but that was the least of their worries. Where was Justin? Mark then dialed 911. Warren County 911, where is the emergency? Uh, at my home here. And what's going on there? Um, came home uh, earlier today. My son wasn't home. My son wasn't home. Uh, didn't really think much about him. He's 18. He comes and goes, no problem. But came home. He's still not home. But we noticed that the house was uh, in disarray. My wife came home from work and said that she hadn't done what was happening in the kitchen. Okay. So we started looking. Okay. My, my safe is gone. My my handgun that was on top of the safe is gone. Uh, watches. Okay. Sure. Looks like it was a wreck. Okay. What's your last name? H C A T E S. And your first name? Mark. Okay. Um, stand in line with me just a moment, okay? Okay. While Mark was calling 911, I was calling Justin's friends from his phone, and they hadn't seen him. He had, well, was any of the room, was anything, you know, windows broken, glass broken, doors open? Um, stuff was, like his room, uh, the lamp was knocked off his dresser The uh, in the kitchen. The tables were all shoved up against the wall. The rugs are missing. Okay, do you know, how did they get in the house? That's gonna be my question. Um, he was probably here. So you're saying it's probably, it's probably your son? Is it, am I getting this correct? Well, no, I'm thinking it might be uh, some friends of his. Okay. That's where I was just trying to figure out how they got into the house. Yeah. Okay. Uh, not something that my son would be doing, but. Okay, Mark, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna get a, I'm gonna get somebody out to you, okay? Try not to disturb anything until they get there, okay? Okay. All right? And most importantly, we're worried about our son. We can't find him now. Okay. Um, we're trying, his cell phone's here, and we're trying to call, you know, his friends and stuff from it to try and see if we can locate him. Okay. But we're not having any luck. What's your son's name? Justin Back. B-A-C-K. When officers arrived, they did a full walkthrough of the home, gaining what information they could from Justin's parents. Officers insisted that they remain calm, but being the mother she is, Sandy couldn't help but fear that her son was in some kind of danger. The officers, you know, the detectives and stuff, they're like, could he be doing this? Could be? I'm like, no, you don't know my kid. Police then spoke to neighbor Andrew Raymond, who lived next door. Raymond told authorities that the same car he'd seen parked in the driveway yesterday was parked there earlier that afternoon, except this time the vehicle was backed in with the front end facing out towards the road. The description of the vehicle was that of a silver Chevy Cavalier with a missing rear windshield, with plastic held up by red duct tape in its place and a bright tap-out sticker on the bumper. They had this huge German Shepherd named Jack, and him and Justin, they were like so close. Their dog was going crazy. My neighbor came out to see Tim's car in our driveway. The neighbor told police that after his dog had alerted him, he'd witnessed a man next door making several trips from the home to the vehicle, placing several items in the back seat and in the trunk of the car. He said that he did not recognize the man, but was sure that it wasn't Justin. Mark and Sandy's hearts sank. It was clear that Timothy Mosley had to have been involved, 
the boy who had just visited their home with Austin Myers, not even 24 hours before. Police followed their one and only lead and began attempting to contact both Austin Myers and Timothy Mosley via cell phone. They obtained their telephone numbers from Justin's contact list, and eventually, Austin Myers answered. And I told them, I was like, look, Austin's a bad kid. Deputy Roberts, one of the first responding officers on scene, identified himself to Austin over the phone and requested his location. Austin responded by claiming that he was at a friend's house somewhere in the Dayton, Ohio area. The officer then asked Myers if he wouldn't mind coming to Waynesville to speak with him. They said, you know, hey, you know, we can't find Justin. Can you stop by? And he's like, oh, yeah, 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 I'll be there. I'll be there. Austin agreed but told the deputy it would take him approximately 45 minutes to get there. Myers said he would call the officer's phone back when he was getting close. After 10 minutes passed, Deputy Roberts called again, asking him of his current location and if he was in fact on the way. Austin replied by stating something to the effect of, Well, I don't have a license, so I'm waiting on my friend to pick me up. Am I in any sort of trouble or should I be worried? Roberts kept the conversation vague, reiterating that he simply needed to speak with him. Austin sounded more nervous on the phone this time, telling officers that his friend had arrived and that he was now leaving. Law enforcement was wise in making sure they called Myers back consistently only minutes apart. They knew Austin could shut his phone off at any point, but the more activity there was, the better chance they'd have of narrowing down his actual location and whereabouts. This turned out to be the exact predicament. Austin powered off his device, but authorities were able to ping his last known location to the Clayton, Ohio area, roughly 20 miles north of Dayton, where Myers said he was originally. Deputy Roberts then went to his cruiser and entered a critical missing persons alert into the National Crime Information Center database via his laptop computer. Police ended up tracking Austin Myers down in Clayton and eventually brought him back to the local police station for questioning. The meek 19-year-old sat in a holding room until detectives Paul Barger and Michael Wyatt arrived all the way from Waynesville. We appreciate you, you know, coming down here and, and, you know, like I told you, you're free to go at any time. You're not under arrest or anything else. Um, We didn't realize, we we told them we wanted to talk to you because we got some questions and that was it. So, you know, you're... I was, I was a little bit confused. Oh, no, I was very confused, actually. But you understand that you're, you know, you're not under arrest and, you know. Yeah, you're, you're... They, they did say I wasn't under arrest. They said I was being detained, so I okay. said, am I being suspected of a crime or something? Yeah, we just want to talk to you, and that's why, you know, you're being voluntary and, and talking to us. We greatly appreciate it, especially at 3 in the morning. But here's the deal. Is that late already? Yes. I've been sitting in the back of that car for a while. Detective Wyatt's main objective here is to try to make Austin Myers as comfortable as possible and to keep him talking. Police don't currently have enough evidence to charge him with a crime, and he's free to leave at any time. But the more information he offers up willingly, the better chance authorities have of locating Justin back. So then when you got up this morning, where did you go? What? Tell me about your day-to-day. I, mean, I played rock band for a while at Logan's house. Um, eventually me and Logan went over to Timmy's. That's not significant. Have you talked any or with Justin any today or have you, what was, did you talk to him after you left Monday night? No, I don't even have his, uh, phone number anymore. Okay. And I just got a new phone number a couple weeks ago because I haven't been able to afford a phone for a long time. Wyatt then asks Myers his current financial situation in an effort to steer him towards a potential confession and to reveal a possible motive for the robbery. Are you working anywhere? Or? Uh, I just it was. Uh, I just started for my distribution, but I don't, like it was this Monday and Tuesday. Okay, for where is it? My distribution, it's a warehouse in Tip City. Okay. My distribution warehouse. What'd you do before that? Or? Uh, I haven't done anything officially in a while since I, I worked at Penn Station. Oh. How do you get money? I mean, how do you have money to do anything? How do you have money to eat? I don't really. I mean, I have a little bit of money, like 30 bucks or something. 
30 bucks certainly isn't enough money to live off of, but Wyatt is careful not to push too hard. He needs wires to keep talking. We've got a whole crew of crime scene people there right now doing everything they can, pulling carpet up, cutting stuff out of walls, spraying all their fancy chemicals all over, lifting every fingerprint from every place in that house. And I don't want this to fall back on you if it shouldn't. I can't help you if you can't talk to me. Tell me what happened. I don't know what happened. I don't believe that. Do you realize if something grim happened to Justin? Do you realize that what that means? I mean, if something happened to him where he was hurt and just left somewhere, or we don't know at this point because we can't find him. Do you realize what that would mean for the people involved in that? Prison? It's around this point where Austin realizes the conversation isn't exactly heading in a direction that would be beneficial to him. He then decides it's in his best interest to remain silent. Why don't you seem concerned about a friend? I am, but I'm not publicly emotional. Why? Why Why do you hold all of your emotion in? To feel it's a weak, weakness. It's not weakness. I feel like it is. Are you sure there's nothing else you can help me with? Not at this time. Okay. All right, well, I'm going to shut this recorder off now, okay? It's now 3... 54 a.m. They couldn't hold Myers. They needed more. As he left, Timothy Mosley, the owner of the suspicious silver Chevy Cavalier, was also brought in. But it would be much of the same, as he too denied any involvement in Justin's disappearance. What's your name? What's your full name? It depends on what people uh, know me by and how long they've been. What's on your birth certificate? Timothy. Timothy what? Mosley. Mosley. Do you, do you have any idea why we ask you to, you know, to come talk to us? Okay. Your car, it's got the back windows busted out or something? Yes, sir. Okay. Did you go anywhere on Tuesday? I mean, drove around a little bit, but... Who was with you when you went driving around? Austin. Austin? Yeah. Was he with you pretty much all day, Tuesday, or...? Not all day, because uh, I stayed the night at Logan's house. And then we were pretty much there the rest of the time. I mean, we wouldn't be sitting here if we hadn't already known the answer to a lot of the questions. There's a couple of big questions that we still don't know the answer to, and I think you know that. Yeah. Like where someone is and where property is. And those are things we need to get to. And it's just a matter of, you know, when are you going to just feel comfortable enough to say, listen, we fucked up or I fucked up or whatever happened. And let's fix it. We can't fix it until we can get to the bottom of it, right? Right. Um, I don't feel comfortable answering any more questions because I don't have a lawyer or nothing. Okay. So, I mean, I've told you what I've told you. So. Okay. So you don't want to talk to us anymore? I mean, unless I'm being contained or arrested for something, then no. Okay. Once Timothy Mosley invoked his Fifth Amendment right to remain silent, by law, Detective Wyatt is no longer able to question him any further. But not all was lost during these interviews. While Austin and Timothy kept their mouths shut for the most part, they had both revealed that they had been hanging out with a third man over the course of the last few days. That man was 19-year-old Logan Zenny. Both Austin and Tim told police that in the hours Justin had first gone missing, they had supposedly been hanging out with Logan in the Clayton area. So it only made sense that this man would be the next person police brought in to have a chat with. And your name, I know, is Logan, but I don't know what's your middle, Logan last. Zenny. What is it? Logan Nisenny. Do you have any idea what's going on? I mean, uh, I got a uh, brief synopsis from Austin's dad when he called me because he was pretty concerned. Okay. Um, essentially, some Justin something kids turned up missing or whatever. So you've known Timmy for... Since like first grade. Oh, it's all your life. So you guys are pretty good friends then. Mm-hmm. How do you know Austin? I knew, met him like two or three years ago in school. We had an interesting way of meeting. What was that? 
I was in the commons during lunch and he came up behind me and gave me a hug and I don't I'm not really too fond of random people touching me so I yeah. hit him in the face and we became best friends right after that wow that's weird here's the gist of it is we know that on Monday um, that Austin and Timmy went to this Justin now do you know Justin hmm. have you, you never met him or anything they went to his house and hung out with him for a while and then left. The neighbor says that he was there for sure and his car was there, but he won't talk. And you were in the house there with him, so, I mean, can you help me out? Can I be like completely honest for a second off of that? 10 seconds ish. Yeah, we can turn that off. Logan Zenny suddenly asked to speak off the record to Detective Wyatt. Wyatt complies, and after a brief moment of pause, the recording resumes. Not only is Zenny more forthcoming than the others, but he drops a bombshell that will soon split this case wide open. All right, I'm going to feel really bad about this, but they make their own decisions. So. Timmy had explained to me when uh, we were in the house that him and Austin had gotten into some kind of scuffle fight with uh, Justin... What's his back? Back. And that's the whole reason the cops were there and everything, because I told him originally I didn't want to know, and finally he just told me. That was what I was really hoping he wouldn't do. What did they say they did with him? Something I honestly do not remember with it, where they said or anything. I don't think they gave me a location, some kind of woods. I can confirm that from what they told me, he's dead. Shockingly. Logan Zenny sells out his friends. He's just informed authorities that he believes Austin and Timothy have killed Justin back. But they still need to find out if Zenny himself was in some way involved, and if what he is saying is in fact true. Because if it is, they need to know where Justin is located. I mean, what exactly was it that they told you? I mean... You want me to run through it verbatim? Yes, exactly how everything happened and all of that fun stuff. Yes. All right. Um, He said it was some kind of meeting deal, something like that. He said like his plan A was obviously to go along with that. And then plan B was what apparently happened. And I guess they'd gone in there to, I guess fucking kill him at that point. What was the plan A? I mean, what would they originally do? They did not tell me what the plan A was. I didn't catch if it was a deal or a meeting or anything like that. I didn't know if they were doing a drug deal or something. Or okay. They aren't typically involved in drugs or anything like that. So then their plan B was they went there with the intent to kill him? Not sure if it was the intent to kill him, but I think they were worried that something might go wrong and just in case. So did they say how they did as far as I know, Austin shot the guy, I think I think he said two times, and I guess Timmy stabbed him, so there's that. With what Logan Zenny had just provided to police, they now had enough information to arrest Mosley and Myers under suspicion of murder. Back at the Cates residence, crime scene techs were doing just as Detective Wyatt had said collecting every strand of evidence they could find. It wasn't until aluminol was sprayed on the kitchen floor, however, that a massive pool of blood would appear. To the naked eye, this would not have been visible, but the chemical reactant showed that the blood seemed to have been hastily cleaned up. Police still were not certain if Justin Back was alive or dead, but going by the newly found evidence in the home, along with Logan Zenny's statement, it was starting to seem as if the latter may unfortunately be true. Both Austin Myers and Timothy Mosley were immediately brought in for a second round of questioning, but this time they were not free to leave. Austin Myers was the first to be interviewed. I 
want to talk to me? Okay. I think I, I could help you find the body. Austin had just corroborated what Logan Zenny had told detectives. That Justin was, in fact, dead. But the how and why remained a mystery. Austin and Justin were supposedly friends at one point. Before we go any further, and before we learn the truth of what actually happened to him, we have to go back a few days prior to his disappearance. And we must warn you, what Austin Myers and Timothy Mosley will inevitably tell you in their own words is mind-boggling, senseless, and gruesome. The first visit, that Monday, January 27th, 2014, Austin Myers wakes up at Timothy Mosley's house. He slept through the first day of a warehouse job he was supposed to start. After quitting his place of employment before he had even arrived, Austin asks Timothy Mosley if he wants to make some money. The two discussed robbing a local drug dealer at first, but then Austin came up with the idea to rob the home of an old friend, Justin Back. This was all set to take place that very same day, but when they got there, they noticed Justin was home and suddenly decided against it. At around noon, they chose to stop at the residence anyway, using the opportunity not to rekindle an old friendship, but to stake out Justin's house before actually committing the robbery. That Monday when they were here, he told Justin he was using the bathroom and Tim and Justin was talking. So Tim was keeping Justin busy and he looked through our room. Austin pretends to go to the bathroom, but instead enters the bedroom of Mark and Sandy Cates down the hall. He'd been inside the residence before and knew exactly what he was looking for. After locating the safe, the plan was solidified to rob them. Austin believed there to be several thousand dollars inside of the lockbox. Mosley and Myers then left the home to, quote, run errands, as they told Justin. What they were actually doing was discussing how to commit the burglary, congregating down at the local library. It was at this time Austin Myers suggested that they kill Justin. Austin and Tim somehow came up with the bizarre idea of murdering Justin back with some sort of fatal injection. They visited a local convenience store and attempted to purchase four boxes of cold medicine, along with a bottle of bug pesticide, but Myers' debit card was declined. He then tried the ATM in the store, but that didn't work either. Austin and Tim then go to a local pharmacy, where they attempted to acquire syringes from a clerk behind the counter. Again, they were denied. It's at this point that the men head back to the Kate's residence where they now watch a movie with Justin and his stepfather, Mark. Justin eventually leaves with Mark to the Navy recruiter, and Austin and Tim depart from the residence together. Mosley allegedly suggested they rob the home then and there, as no one would be around and they could make a clean getaway. But Myers shuts this idea down immediately. The pair then drives from Waynesville to Clayton, arriving a short while later at Tim Mosley's house. This is where Plan B is hatched. Crowbar, wire, duct tape, strangle, no mess, take clothes, money, phone, charger, disappear. Tim Mosley began jotting down items to purchase as well as what to do on a list. The two agreed on the idea of strangling Justin back, murdering him, and then robbing the home. The plan also entailed the pair making off with all of Justin's clothing to make it appear as though he had robbed his parents himself and then simply ran away. They finally had a plan, but still had no money for supplies. At some point, their friend Logan Zenny showed up at Mosley's house. They asked Zenny if he'd lend them $20. They told him it was for some sort of deal where they could turn a profit. No mention was ever made of their plans to kill anyone, so Logan Zenny obliged, giving them the money. Myers and Mosley are seen later that evening on surveillance video entering a Lowe's hardware store in Trotwood, Ohio. There, they're caught on camera purchasing two 78-cent metal rope cleats and a three-foot spool of galvanized wire. The cleats would be used as handles tied to the ends of the steel wire. They were creating an improvised garrote, or choke wire. The two men then head back to Mosley's house where they ask Zenny to fashion the weapon for them, though they did not tell him what the device would later be used for. The 
the second visit. The next morning, Tuesday, January 28, 2014, Myers and Mosley head to a local Dollar General where they purchase ammonia, rubber gloves, and septic tank cleaner. They used some of the change left over from the $20 bill to buy these items. After that, they headed for Waynesville. The men planned to commit the crime at around 1 p.m., but got into town earlier than expected. They decided to kill some time by browsing a nearby antique shop. They then used the last $7 in change to get gas for Mosley's car. After casing the property, driving by several times, Mosley and Myers show up at the Cates residence. Justin answers the door, but is hesitant to let them inside. Justin did not know Tim at all. Justin was talking to them about the military. That's why he let them in, because Tim said it didn't look like Justin was going to let them come in the house. That's when Austin said, well, we just want to know how your study session with the Navy was. Using the guise of a false interest in his future plans, a skeptical Justin ultimately lets Mosley and Myers into the home. Justin wanted to get me a Mountain Dew, and then Timmy said he wanted one. He, Justin handed me one, and he went back to grab another one, and Timmy put whatever he called the thing. Uh, it looked like he tried to put it around his neck, but it went across his chin. After hanging out in the living room for roughly 20 minutes, Justin offered the two men a drink from the fridge. With his back now turned as he went to grab the beverage, Tim Mosley comes up from behind Justin with the homemade garrote and begins strangling him. Was it so it's like a chain that choked somebody out? Yeah, basically. Oh, it was like a cable. Oh, does it got like handles on it? Yeah. While attempting to render him unconscious, they realized the wire hadn't made it all the way around Justin's neck and was instead caught on his chin. So when he puts this around his neck, what, what happens? I, I didn't really know what to do. I wasn't expecting that to happen. I kind of just like stood there like an idiot, basically. But they struggled for not very long, maybe five to 10 seconds. Uh, Timmy pulled out a, some sort of a pocket knife. As soon as Tim Mosley realized that things weren't going as planned, he panicked and quickly pulled a six inch blade out from his pocket. He then mercilessly proceeds to stab Justin. Now, I thought at the time, it looked like he was punching him in the stomach is what I thought. So he let go of the thing around his neck then? Yeah. So he did that for a while and... He, he still had like one hand up in the uh-huh. same area. I don't know if, how, if he was holding it or if he was holding one side or what. But I thought that he started punching him in the stomach and punching him in the back. Then I realized when Justin went onto the ground, I realized because there was blood pooling out. And I know that... Uh, from the CPR first aid class and yeah. stuff, that one of his lungs punctured. Was he talking? Justin said a couple of things that were like random. He said, why? And please help. He said, Austin, help me. He said, please help many times. And he said, why? Was, and please help was the last thing he said. Did you say anything to him when he was asking you why? Oh, I said, this is, it's going to be okay, or it's okay. I, I said that multiple times. I what else to say. It was almost like a, something to say. Austin states that as Tim is stabbing Justin to death, he begged for his life. Austin told Justin, quote, It's going to be okay. It will be over soon. While he's recalling these horrific details, amazingly, Myers is still attempting to proclaim his own innocence. What would you think? Did you ever ask Tim why this suddenly happened? I mean, did you, what would I mean, you guys okay. saying? I didn't want to talk. I didn't want to try to talk about it because he just killed one of my old friends in front of me, and he had a gun in his pocket, right. and I didn't know why. I don't know why he killed him in the first place. Myers and Mosley were now being held in separate interrogation rooms that sat directly adjacent to one another. They both shared a thin wall. While Austin Myers is in the middle of sharing his recollection of events, Timothy Mosley can hear everything he is saying. Do you know what Tim was going to do? Well, he came back with the gun and the gun's case. He had the gun out and he stuck it in his pocket. And he said that we had to clean everything up. Did you have any 
indication? Did, did Tim ever say anything that he was planning something like that or doing something like no, that? No, all he said was that he wanted to go back. Did you ask him why or did he tell you why he wanted to go back? No, I thought it was kind of cool. He said he wanted to go back to Waynesville. Myers tells the detective he had no idea why Tim wanted to kill the 19-year-old, blaming the act on Mosley alone. He also claimed to have no prior knowledge of any planning on his part before they arrived. Meanwhile, Tim is still listening intently through the wall from the other room. I'm just kind of wondering, and I guess the whole my whole thing is, you know, your buddy's laying there on the ground, you're holding him. Did you think to call 911? If I thought that there had been any chance, then I would have, but he was gone within. From the time you see he actually got stabbed, right. and I wasn't trying to compromise myself getting shot either. He was already screwed. In some cases, having two suspects eavesdrop on each other's statements could be extremely detrimental, especially during a murder investigation. But not here. In complete contrast, this scenario would end up working greatly to the police's advantage. After Mosley heard Myers placing all of the blame on him, he tapped on the two-way glass to get Detective Wyatt's attention. He decided he'd finally had enough and was ready to confess the entire unfiltered truth of what actually happened and why. Honestly, if he's going to be like that, it's only like I did everything when that's not the case. Probably, I don't have no reason to lie. How many times do you think you hit him with a knife? Hmm? How many times do you think total you hit him with a knife? Like I said, I'm pretty sure maybe... I'm, I'm, I'm trying to replay it in my mind, so I'm just... I want to say between, between five and seven times in the back at least, and then fewer than that in the chest. Maybe five, I would say five and less to the chest. Yeah. Like I said, I, can't, I couldn't tell exactly how many times I hit him because his arms were in the way. And I don't know what actually got him and what didn't. So. Tim Mosley goes on to explain that he didn't know Justin back and that Austin Myers was the mastermind behind their plan. Most of what Austin Myers confessed is partially true, except that he conveniently left out his own involvement. When Mosley was stabbing Justin to death, Myers was allegedly holding him down, restraining him until he took his last breath. The only reason why we needed the money is because he lied to his dad. He said that I've been taking him to work, but I lied to his, uh, Austin's dad. And I said, yeah, I've been taking him to work and everything. Cause I used to work where he was trying to get a job at. Well, Monday, uh, orientation Monday and Tuesday. You start work on Wednesday, right? right? Monday. Like I said, we get, uh, I was supposed to take him to work, but by the time it was already like nine o'clock, orientation was at eight. So then that's when he brought up, want to make some money. Right. And then he told me about this. Austin Myers didn't want to work and had been lying to his father about going to a job that didn't exist. When Monday came around for a position he had finally obtained, Austin was a no-show. That's when the plot to kill an old friend and commit the robbery was born. It was also allegedly discussed that the two considered killing Justin's stepdad, Mark, that same day. According to Tim Mosley, this was Austin's idea as well. Pretty much when you guys got that wire, I mean, there was no turn back. You guys knew what you were going to do. You guys were going to go in there, and you guys had this plan. When he walked into the kitchen, you were coming there, and pretty much you guys were going to kill this guy, kill him for... And make it look look like we run away, hide the body to where... And even maybe get to the point where you were going to kill his dad to make it cover. That was... was I wasn't about to do that, because that's just... That's too risky. Too much work and too too much... much, Too much... If we would have left... Say, okay, say we did Mm -hmm. kill... Both of them, Justin Anus said that. It's just it was we were already having enough trouble carrying Justin's body. Right. His dad, his stepdad's like three times bigger than him and has a gun on. He would be a lot heavier and a lot bigger to fit in the trunk. So it's just it didn't work out. I was like, no, fuck that. I guess how did and I guess I, I don't know if he asked me how do you know he was dead? I mean, how do you how do you know for sure? I've seen plenty of horror movies and stuff. Okay, the, just the way. Plus, I know enough about the body. Like, it goes cold, it stiffens up, and the way the face looks. Okay. Like, everything was just drained. Because I've seen plenty of people pass out. It looks like they, their face is white. Right. He was, like, stone cold white. And just, you can tell. I mean, what do you think finished the job? You stabbing him in the chest or him getting strangled by it? Probably a mixture of both. Mixture of both? Honestly, probably a mixture of both. 
After killing Justin in his own home, they wrapped him in a comforter from his bed and placed his body in the trunk of Tim Mosley's car. They then took the blood-soaked rugs with them and attempted to clean the crime scene with the dollar store ammonia they had preemptively purchased before committing the murder. They also stole Mark Cates' safe and handgun, in addition to Sandy's jewelry, an iPod, a laptop, and $100 cash out of Justin's wallet. The iPod that they stole, Justin paid for. The laptop that they stole, he paid for. Myers and Mosley drove to a remote area outside of the village of Gratis in Preble County, Ohio. They dumped Justin's body behind a tree in the freezing snow. They then poured powdered septic enzymes over him. This was just another example of their twisted logic. They believed this tactic would help expedite decomposition. Austin then asked Mosley to give him the stolen handgun. He then proceeded to shoot two rounds directly into Justin Back's already lifeless body. Myers then fired a third time, but the gun jammed. The loose bullet along with the spent shell casings were later discovered by police. The two men originally believed there to be thousands of dollars in the safe, but what makes this crime infinitely more tragic is learning precisely what little Justin Back actually lost his life over. Not 15 minutes, we got it open. We're almost there. Not what we expected. It was a bunch of paperwork and stuff. Uh, there was no money in the freaking safe, other than the coins and the print. After Tim and Austin pried the safe open with a crowbar at Tim Mosley's mother's house, they found nothing more than some documents and coins. There was no big payday, and Justin Back was killed over some measly paperwork and loose change. They then burned their blood-soaked clothing and any other evidence they could in a bonfire in the backyard. Tim's mother joined them for a brief moment, asking what the boys were up to. They explained to her that they were simply getting rid of some of Austin's ex-girlfriend's stuff. Then Tim secretly carried the safe from his room back to his car, and they drove to a nearby lake to dispose of it. After that, they arrived at friend Logan Zenny's house, where Myers and Mosley hid whatever they considered valuable from the robbery. These items were stashed in a different safe Zenny owned himself. Logan allegedly had no knowledge of what his two friends had just done, until police called Austin Myers' cell phone. That's when Mosley panicked, telling Logan everything, and his best friend of many years subsequently went straight to the Clayton PD to report what he believed to be a homicide. Justin Back was stabbed 21 times after being strangled with a steel choke wire. The autopsy findings stated the official cause of death was from multiple sharp force injuries. On February 5, 2014, it seemed as though the entire greater community of Waynesville and beyond came together at the First Baptist Church to honor the life of fallen future sailor Justin Michael Back. Before his services were to take place, Mother Sandy Cates had one final request. I went to his recruiter. I said, look, Justin was in. And I said, I'm wanting to know if we could get a uniform for him. He's like, I don't think this is going to happen. I said, look, this is all that, this is all that Justin wanted. And uh, so he's like, well, let me see. And within an hour, he had gotten one. Somebody who had just graduated from Navy boot camp donated his blue camouflage. So Justin's buried in it. The Waynesville Fire Department was in full attendance as well. Their red emergency vehicles leading the procession parked in front of the church, stretching as far as the eye could see. Here is Justin's fire science instructor, Tim Keene, speaking to Justin's character and expressing what a great loss his murder had brought to their community. He was on his way to the Navy uh, to further his dreams, and uh, tragically, he lost a battle. His dedication to whatever he put his mind to, he was extremely dedicated, and he did it to the best of his ability. And it didn't matter whether it was going to be the Navy or whether it was fire service, EMS, whatever. He was a dedicated young man. Not only was Justin's family in the midst of dealing with this immeasurable grief, they now had to suffer through two potential murder trials. Ohio is a death penalty state, and both Austin Myers and Timothy Mosley were facing execution. Just a week before Mosley's trial, 
he entered into a plea agreement. At a final pretrial hearing on September 12, 2014, Mosley pleaded guilty to all charges in exchange for his testimony against co-defendant Austin Myers. Sure enough, a few weeks later that October, Tim Mosley would be called to the stand in the capital murder trial of Austin Gregory Myers. We were going to go into the house. Uh, Austin was going to distract Justin, and then I was going to come up behind him and choke him and kill him. At first, it was minimal conversation, if any. Uh, As we were, uh, obviously, Justin was trying to put up a fight. He wasn't overpowering us. A few moments after, uh, Justin was trying to ask ask us why. To, he was cleaning the stop and pretty much begging for his life. That Monday, we were at the house. Austin, when Austin used the restroom, he said that he saw the safe and that he saw it was, that it was indeed cracked. Austin told me that I had missed his uh, throat and that it was wrapped around his chin. And I told him to fix it. Th- through the panicking the, and the fight, Uh, I pulled out my knife and started to stab Justin in the back. Austin Myers pleaded not guilty. As Tim Mosley was testifying against him in court, prosecutors produced a surveillance video image taken from a gas station following the murder. In it, Mosley and Myers are captured in the still frame where they are seen using the $100 cash they stole from Justin back to purchase some energy drinks and snacks. Where's Justin while this photos being taken in the trunk outside yes tim mosley's testimony was obviously crucial for the state's prosecution the evidence presented in court revealed austin myers's true character that of a cold-blooded killer acting only out of self-interest the jury evidently felt the same after less than six hours of deliberations austin myers was found guilty of first-degree murder and the jury recommended to the judge that he be sentenced to death. The following week on October 16, 2014, Austin Myers reappeared in court for his sentencing hearing. Before rendering his final sentence, Judge Donald Oda called for victim impact statements to be read aloud in the courtroom. Justin's mother was one of the first to speak addressing one of her son's killers directly, asking the resounding question that still plagues her to this day. Why? Austin could have stopped it, but tells Justin, it's okay, it's almost over. You could have changed your mind many times, but you didn't, especially when Justin was begging for his life. As mandated by law, Austin Myers was also given an opportunity to address the court aloud. I can only imagine the pain and loss felt by Mark and Sandy Cates and by Jacob Back, Justin's brother. I have brothers and sisters myself. I can only imagine what it would be like to lose one of them. I'm sorry that this happened. I know that doesn't bring Justin back, but I'm sorry. I wish I could go back in time and stop this before it even happened, but I can't. I hate for any family to go through such pain and suffering as this, to lose your son, I can't imagine, to lose your brother. If you choose for me to die, it's only gonna cause more pain and suffering for another family, not me. It won't hurt me, I won't feel anything. It's gonna hurt more innocent people. My mom and my dad, and my brothers Bryce and Josh over there, and Carson and Sage, to my sisters, Alex and Jenna, and Eva and Cami, the people that I love, I'm asking you not to do this to my brothers and my sisters who love me and look up to me. I ask you not to spread this pain any further to any more innocent people. The terrible events of this past January have caused more than enough pain already. If you kill me, it won't fix anything. It won't bring Justin back. It's only going to hurt more innocent people. I don't want to hurt people. I'm not asking you to spare my life so I can hurt anyone. I want to help people. I want to help stop tragedies like this from happening. 
all I'm asking you for is a chance for me to become a better person. With a deadpan glare and without showing any semblance of emotion, Austin Myers exhibits no visible signs of remorse, not in the cadence of his voice nor in his facial expression. When he said, I won't feel a thing, it'll just hurt my family, he's correct. He feels nothing. Judge Oda ultimately affirmed the jury's recommendation, sentencing Austin Myers to death. At the age of 19, he became Ohio's youngest death row inmate. His execution date was scheduled for July 20th, 2022. Myers is currently in the appeal process and requesting a stay of execution at the time of releasing this episode. While Timothy Mosley's outcome was well known the day he took the plea deal, he wouldn't officially be sentenced until roughly one month later, on November 14, 2014. Like Austin before him, Tim Mosley stood and spoke to Justin Back's family at his final sentencing hearing. I keep asking myself the past nine and a half months why I did it, and I, I just can't give you that answer right now. I hope someday that I will be able to give you that answer, and... There's not a day or night that goes by that it doesn't haunt me of what I did. And there's absolutely no excuse. And I just want you guys to know that I really am sorry. Though his life had been spared, the judge handed down a mandatory sentence of life in prison without the possibility of parole. While justice has seemingly been served in this case, we asked Sandy her thoughts on Myers receiving the sentence of death. She agrees with the punishment for the crime, but also expressed that in no way does the ruling bring her any sense of joy. I think it is an appropriate punishment. I was always pro-death penalty if you could prove it within 100%. And I do agree that it is the proper punishment, but there is a but. It's not like I'm excited that he's going to die. I think it is very sad because this just didn't happen to Justin. These two families lost their children and their families are forever changed. Three families forever ruined. Sandy Cates is extremely strong and shows an immense amount of compassion, not just for her son, but for everyone who has been affected by this tragedy. She told us that as part of her healing process, she has surprisingly decided to make the difficult decision to write Timothy Mosley in prison. I had written Tim. He and I were working on a face-to-face before COVID. I, I got to tell you, I was, I was stuck in grief. It was laid on my heart that I needed to write him. And for me to move forward, I, I have to forgive them, not forgive the act. It's never going to be OK. But one of the things that I did say was you really need to think about what was in you that you went forward with this because they went through roadblock after roadblock after roadblock, but they were on the road. This is going to happen. They were hell-bent on doing this. It's very clear after speaking with Sandy just where her son Justin learned his kind-hearted ways and selflessness. Intrigued by the act of corresponding with Timothy Mosley, we asked if she had any intention of reaching out to the man who planned her son's murder, Austin Myers. She told us no, because Austin was a predator and he chose her son. Timothy Mosley never did write Sandy back, and Austin Myers still proclaims his innocence to this day and has never taken accountability for his involvement in the murder. The Myers family has never once contacted Sandy or offered any condolences. We reached out to Logan Zenny, the third party who was not charged in this case. We wanted to see if he would speak with us on his knowledge of what actually took place over the course of those few days back in January of 2014. We did eventually get a hold of him, but he simply responded by saying, quote, Thank you for the offer, but I'll pass. Sandy Cates has turned down virtually every major American TV deal, documentary, and media outlet offered under the sun. She did agree to speak with us, however, because, in her opinion, 
Certain publications were looking to depict Justin's tragedy as salacious entertainment as opposed to honoring his life, and we can't say that we blame her. She chose to speak with Invisible Choir because she trusted that we would appropriately relay to our audience who Justin was as a person, rather than focusing solely on the graphic details of his murder. We spoke at length with Sandy, agreeing that the unfortunate specifics of what happened to her son are crucial. However, crucial in the public's understanding of the great pain these two men have caused. Not only physical, but the residual emotional turmoil as well. There was a major void created once Justin left this earth. Sandy wants people to know the facts of what happened and to preserve Justin's legacy. She continues to do so by hosting an annual 5K race and by raising money for the Justin Back Hero Scholarship Fund. This story isn't merely upsetting because an 18-year-old was killed. He wasn't a teenager that hung out with the wrong crowd, did the wrong things, and ended up becoming a product of decisions that he made. No, Justin Back was the kind of kid every parent can only hope for. He wanted to serve his country. He had goals and aspirations beyond his years that any decent individual would deem as otherwise admirable. He was a model citizen that was taken from this world two weeks before his 19th birthday by one man he didn't even know and by another who he had tried to help when no one else would. This loss, though undoubtedly the worst for Sandy, Mark, and his older brother Jacob, has reached so many, and that loss now extends further to the Invisible Choir podcast team. He was an old soul, as his mother told us. For those who weren't lucky enough to meet him in the short time he was here, we hope we were able to shed even the slightest amount of light, not on how important Justin Michael Back was, but is, and how significant his life forever will be. Thank you.